Hey everybody, welcome to OK Talks. I'm your host, Oliver Kendall. I am a lifelong political nerd with a background in international security policy and having worked for a while in the US domestic political space, but also lived in a number of countries abroad, I am, I feel, uh, fairly well positioned to shed light for my American listeners on uh, some events of note going on outside the country and to interpret for my friends abroad uh, just what's going on in the politics uh, back in the homeland which is what I'm going to do today. So here goes yet another podcast episode that I really didn't think I was going to do. And I will say I definitely don't necessarily plan on having OK Talks turn into some sort of breaking news show or anything like that. I just don't have the bandwidth or desire. But as a number of people are asking me what I think about the results that we have so far out of the U.S. midterm elections that just happened, and as I also just about 48 hours ago released a pretty doom and gloom podcast in anticipation of those midterms, uh, I thought I'd quickly record and put out my thoughts on what we know so far. And what we know so far is, as they say, um, I think it's in the Bible, I don't know, whatever. Joy cometh in the morning. Well, maybe not joy quite, but certainly not wandering aimlessly around in the rain in Barcelona in search of a tall building to hop off of, which is how I anticipated I would be feeling this time today about 24 hours ago. So, I like a lot of people in my circle who are as nerdy as I am about American politics, despite the fact that we definitely suffered some losses yesterday, uh, am not that unhappy about this election result. And it's worth explaining both for the sake of non-American listeners and to Americans who are just not as obsessed with politics and political history as I am, why it is that my hair is actually less on fire than it was this time yesterday. After all, Democrats failed to win governorships that we really had hopes for in Georgia and Texas. Our really excellent candidate in Ohio did not manage to flip the Senate seat there. We didn't win the Senate seat in North Carolina that we had a shot at. We didn't manage to dislodge the absolutely loathsome, vicious Senator Ron Johnson in Wisconsin. We look like we might lose the Senate seat in Nevada. The Yahoo election denier in Arizona may still win the governorship there, and we probably still are on track to lose the House. That all sounds pretty bad. That being said, though, just the way that I pronounced the word probably there a second ago is in itself kind of a big deal. Again, for the sake of my non-American listeners, well, and also Americans who just generally people who have a, a less unhealthily obsessive relationship with politics than I do, um, I need to explain that historically in midterm elections, especially the midterm that happens during the first term of a president uh, who was last elected, the president's party gets massacred. This was uh, the this 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 year was the least terrible midterm for any president since George Bush in 2002 which in and of itself is an election that in my mind really doesn't count anyway because 9/11 which had just happened before basically caused, you know, a temporary suspension of the normal rules of political gravity. Like Obama's first midterms, he got crushed. Trump's first midterms got destroyed. They lost like 40 seats. Bill Clinton's first midterm election. Republicans retook the House for the first time in 40 years. This was not nearly as bad as this election almost always is for the party of the president that just got elected. So that being the case, this is what I've been telling people today as my summary of the sort of moral of the story of the results as we know them so far. 
on the one hand, compared against history, the fact that the president's party always gets annihilated in the midterms, and also considering the intense uh, political headwinds that Democrats were facing in the form of inflation, the global phenomenon of inflation, as I said a whole bunch in the last episode, which is not the Democrats' fault, but the Democratic Party is still paying the price for it politically. Given these results in the context of history and of those headwinds, I really should be pretty happy about how not badly this election has gone so far. On the other hand, this is not a normal election year, in the sense that, as I think I've mentioned once or twice on here, the Republicans are no longer a normal opposition party. They're not, as the saying goes, a loyal opposition. They are, at this point, an authoritarian political project. It really is time, I think, to start using the F-word, fascist. I mean, their goal, of course, this doesn't apply to all of them, but as a block, the way they're behaving as a group, their goal is not really to provide a policy alternative to the Democrats so much as it is to bring down the government of the United States if the Democrats happen to be in charge of it and to consolidate power in an undemocratic way so as to ensure that they will never again themselves lose power. If me saying that the Republicans' goal is actively to basically pursue an if we can't have it, nobody can attempt to effectively bring down the U.S. government if they don't happen to be in charge of it, and you want an actual example, uh, go have a look at the 18th episode of this podcast in which I discuss Republican brinksmanship around the debt ceiling, which sounds innocuous if you don't know what I'm talking about. And if that applies to you, you really should listen to that episode to learn about how this own goal would result in the complete demolition of the U.S. economy and likely a global economic meltdown and the total ruin of America's standing in the world. So, to summarize, on the one hand, this wasn't nearly as bad as it could have been. On the other hand, anything short of the Republicans losing basically everything is still very, very bad for the country. For a number of reasons that I've discussed in a lot of episodes, but for some specific ones that I go into a lot more detail on uh, in the previous episode of this podcast, which if you haven't heard, I really encourage you to go and listen to. I'll talk in a few minutes about some of the takeaways and like the implications of this election and what we know about it so far. So far. But before I do that, I'm going to highlight a few details of the on the one hand uh, part of that moral of the story that I just outlined. Uh, some of the less terrible than anticipated things about this election. So, I woke up this morning, and contrary to what I expected when I went to bed last night, the Republicans had not yet taken the House. As things stand right now, <laughs> I'm going to go to bed tonight, at some point, God, tomorrow's going to be a rough day in the office, and I doubt they will have at that point. Now, for perspective, the Republicans only needed a net gain of, like, five seats out of a possible 435 to take the House. A bunch of the predictions, certainly including my own before, had Republicans with a net gain of like 30 seats. And that is just not going to happen at this point. A few incumbent Democrats have lost, like the absolutely wonderful Elaine Luria in Virginia. She has been a great public servant and a patriot, and our government is far worse off without her. On the other hand, some of my other favorite amazing frontline congresspeople like Abby Spanberger in Virginia and Alyssa Slotkin in Michigan, who are both in very tough districts, uh, have also both been reelected. And also, while we have lost a few incumbent seats, we've actually taken a few formerly Republican seats as well. I gotta be honest, I think the Republicans are still probably gonna get the House. 
still technically possible that, that the Democrats somehow managed to hold on. I doubt it'll end up that way. But still, that said, the fact that it's not completely absurd for me to be saying the day after that it's still possible that the Democrats could hold the House is itself kind of a huge deal in the context of what we were expecting. And then there's the Senate. Now, I mentioned at the top several Senate races against really awful Republicans that I was really hoping we would win. And as I said a lot in the pre-election episode from like two days ago, if the election were held three months ago, I really think we would have won those seats. That being said, though, as of now, we haven't actually lost any of our existing Senate seats yet. And we won in Pennsylvania. This one in Pennsylvania that was really not close, again, three months ago, ended up being a nail-biter because the very strong Democratic candidate in that race had, uh, in the end, a much closer race than anticipated against the former TV quack Dr. Oz, who Donald Trump pushed into the race because John Fetterman, our candidate, uh, is recovering from a stroke. Uh, but as Fetterman kept saying, even as it's been at times difficult for him to communicate because he, like, where the stroke seems to have impacted him most is in, like, auditory processing. But as he keeps saying, in January, he'll be a lot better, but Dr. Oz will still be a fraud. And as it turns out, he will also not be a senator. Now, of the races still outstanding in the Senate, there are Nevada, Arizona, and Georgia. Now, <laughs> I've talked about the Georgia Senate race more than once on this show, given the the uniquely unqualified nature of the Republican candidate there, Herschel, I just found out his full name, Herschel Jr. Walker. You know what? Actually, I can't believe no one as far as I know have thought of this, uh, but I'm going to I'm gonna pull a Trump and give him a, a crappy nickname. Uh, since virtually everything that he says is untrue, he shall henceforth on this show be known as Herschel Jr. Whopper. Uh, as of right now, we know that we're not going to know the outcome in Georgia for at least a month because in that state, if nobody wins more than 50%, uh, they hold a runoff election uh, at a later date. And I think there is actually a pretty good chance that Raphael Warnock, the Democrat, will beat Junior Whopper in that runoff. And here's why. So I've talked in episodes in years past when I was talking about voter suppression, about Georgia's Governor Brian Kemp being... Very, very bad. Uh, but despite that, he has actually become quite a bit more popular in Georgia than I would have ever anticipated or hoped, and definitely more than Whopper Jr., possibly because Whopper Jr. is <laughs> a massive hypocrite and clinically insane. I'm guessing that a lot of the votes that Walker got in this election were people who showed up to vote for Brian Kemp and then pulled the lever uh, for the other guy while they were at it. And I also bet that a lot of those folks don't show up for Whopper Jr. in a month. Now, I gotta say, when I when I decided that I was going to apply a Burger King-themed nickname to Herschel Walker, I really didn't think I'd be using it that much, but there you are. <laughs> and then there's Nevada. So this one snuck up on me a little bit. Uh, but I guess uh, I had just been ignorant, and a lot of the analysis uh, had been flashing red here for a couple weeks. As of right now, the Republican candidate is ahead of Senator Catherine Cortez Masto, the Democrat. This one, we won't know this one for a while, I think, because Nevada counts votes real slow, uh, and this race is very tight. The one glimmer of hope that I have here is that most people who live in Nevada live around 
Las Vegas, and a lot of the votes left to be counted are in Clark County, which is where Las Vegas is. And Cortez Masto has about a five-point lead in that county, so if trends continue, she could possibly uh, take back the overall lead. In Arizona, I'm a bit more optimistic. For one thing, Blake Masters, the Republican candidate in Arizona, is just, he's just kind of like a weird little creep. And it's hard for me to imagine him beating hero astronaut Mark Kelly. Uh, Kelly right now is up by about, at least as of like a couple hours ago, about 90,000 votes. Uh, also, the same question uh, that I brought up uh, in the Nevada context applies here uh, of where the votes are left to be counted. Based on the New York Times calculation of this, a lot of the votes, again, as of right now, a lot of the votes still to be counted in Arizona are in Maricopa County and Pima County, which are by far the most populous counties in that state. Maricopa County leans Democratic. Pima County also had more votes for Kelly, at least in 2020, than his opponent at the time. And his opponent then was, again, not a weird little creep as Plake Masters is. Uh, so with the caveat that I could definitely be wrong, I do feel at this point like we're probably going to hold the Arizona Senate seat. Bottom line, I think the odds are, at this point, better than even the Democrats will hold the Senate, even if that means my waking nightmare of all of it hinging on yet another runoff in Georgia like in 2020. I'm just going to really hope that we hold Nevada so that that is negated. So besides the national level stuff, there are a number of state level uh, results that are also not terrible. I should say, I don't know yet who's won in a number of Secretary of State races that, given their ability to mess with elections, are suddenly really important races now. <laughs> now that Republicans have decided that their path to victory runs through messing with elections. Like, for example, I don't know if the weird... Yosemite Sam election denier dude running for Secretary of State in Arizona has lost, but... Democrats have uh, picked up uh, the governorships in Maryland and Massachusetts, those states' first uh, black and first female and lesbian uh, governors, respectively. And as, th as those races were never really in doubt, I think it's a rather bigger deal that incumbent Democratic governors in these swingier states of Michigan, Wisconsin, and Minnesota all held on. In Minnesota and Michigan, on top of that, the Democrats took control of both houses of the state legislature, which means those states are likely about to get real productive. Uh, in Michigan, this is the first time since, like, the early 1980s the Democrats have had complete control, so go blue. Now, I've got ties to Michigan and Minnesota, having lived in both, uh, so I'm really excited about both of these outcomes, but I have to say, especially Michigan, I'm just personally thrilled that Gretchen Whitmer, who I love, uh, got reelected as Michigan's governor, partly just because I love her, uh, but also uh, because this feels especially appropriate considering that since the last time she was elected, she was almost the victim of a plot uh, about two years ago by a bunch of Trump supporters to kidnap and murder her. So <laughs> enjoy jail, assholes. Let's make sure somebody lets them know just how well their plan to remove Gretchen from power has worked out. Speaking of governors, Kansas somehow has a Democratic governor, she also got reelected. Beyond uh, gubernatorial races, there was also some good movement on ballot measures in Michigan. Uh, a couple of very important ones passed, including one that makes it easier to vote, and another which adds the right to have an abortion to Michigan's state constitution. 
A number of states also passed ballot measures legalizing weed. Even Kentucky passed some sort of ballot measure that, like, kind of protects abortion rights in that state. There's more, uh, and there will be more in the coming days. Uh, but bottom line, to paraphrase Michael Steele, the former chair of the Republican Party, the red wave we were all told to expect really was more of a red dribble. That being said, and now on to the less happy, on the other hand, part of this episode, there are definitely some implications of this election having gone this way, or, or implications of the fact that we didn't win everything that we needed to. I'm going to get into some of that analysis in a second, but before I do, hey, you made it this far. If you haven't already, why not go and hit that subscribe button, thus ensuring that A, you will not miss any future episodes of this podcast, and B, contributing to Oliver's surprisingly not terrible post-midterm elections mood, which is to say, you know, thanks. Alright, back to why we're actually here. Now I should say, in the episode directly preceding this one, I did go into some detail about some of the potential negative consequences of anything less than a total victory in this election. That being the case, along with the fact that I need to be in the office in seven hours, <laughs> um, I'm probably going to go into a little bit less detail here than I might and will encourage you to go and listen to that episode. Uh, that being said, however, I do have some analysis or conclusions or something, just immediate reactions to this election, and I'm going to try and put together a couple of them here now. So, first of all, the House. Again, we haven't officially lost the House yet, and it's still technically possible that we don't. But I think we're gonna. Uh, the fact that we're gonna lose the House, and also... Okay, so, so part of the news about us losing the House is that we're actually... if Again, if we lose it, it's not gonna be by very much. On the one hand, that's good, because the Republicans will barely have a majority. On the other hand, that means that Kevin McCarthy, who... As I speculated in the previous episode, I think might end up getting defenestrated now as the Republican leader, especially considering how much worse this election went than he anticipated. But if he does manage to hold on, he will have to do whatever the craziest members of his caucus, whatever the Marjorie Taylor Greene types ask him to do, because if he loses their vote, he loses the leadership and he won't be able to do anything. Uh, so, ironically, a small Republican majority is actually likely to be crazier than a big Republican majority. On the one hand, this could be extremely irritating, because it means that almost certainly the Republicans will attempt to impeach Joe Biden every couple of weeks for some imagined defense, for whatever Marjorie Taylor Greene learns about when she's talking to her toaster oven or something. Also, Republicans, as committee chairs, will probably start sending subpoenas to the White House and try everything they can to launch bullshit investigations and gum up the works of the executive branch. On the other hand, if this ass-clownery is public enough, this could end up redounding to Democrats' benefit. Because, like, having Republicans in Congress doing ridiculous nonsense in a very public way without having a Republican president who's able to enact their agenda could be a comparatively harmless way of reminding the American people just what they're getting when they vote for the Republicans, uh, well in time to make sure that things don't go so hot for them in the next election. As for the Senate, if we do hold it, which at this point I again am very, very cautiously optimistic, but if we do manage to hold the Senate, this will mean that we will continue to be able to appoint judges 
to start the long and deeply necessary process of repairing the damage that Donald Trump wrought on the judiciary, not repairing so much as balancing, because we can't actually remove the prepubescent, unqualified Federalist Society cardboard cutouts that Trump managed to stick on the bench, but at least we can fill more of the empty seats with decent people who are actually qualified to be judges so that those seats will not be empty, which is A, good for our judicial system, and B, means those seats are not empty, thus to be filled by Republicans later. If we lose the Senate, we lose the ability to do that. That would really suck. Um, we still have Biden, who would be able to then veto every ridiculous messaging bill that the Republicans pass. But I gotta say, sitting where I'm sitting right now, being able to be cautiously optimistic about Democrats winning the Senate looks a whole lot better if we hold it than if we don't. That being said, whether we manage to hold the Senate or, in fact, lose it, uh, I think that the character of the Republicans in the Senate is set to become a little bit nastier than it is right now. For example, Richard Burr from North Carolina was hardly an angel, but he was, in a number of ways, a decent human being. I'm pretty sure he voted for at least one of... I think he voted for Trump's second impeachment. Um, he was a decent human being, which is a lot more than could be said for Ted Budd his incoming replacement. Uh, Rob Portman, uh, the outgoing Republican senator from Ohio, means a another half-decent, in some ways, uh, at least professional Republican senator, is being replaced by J.D. Vance, who I've also talked about in previous episodes of this show. I don't know. I, I have my doubts about J.D. Vance, because, like... <laughs> He managed to win this election, sadly, against Tim Ryan, who I think would have been an amazing senator for Ohio. But J.D. Vance managed to win this election in Ohio by basically playing a Trump supporter, like putting on this you know, whole like Trumpy persona, which is a complete fraud. Like he's on the record as like a very articulate critic of Donald Trump in the past, back when he was like a darling of the liberal media. You know, and then he decided to play a Trumpy on TV when he decided that he really wanted to get elected to the Senate. You know, all of which leads me to believe he, unlike Ron Johnson, the imbecile from Wisconsin that that state for some reason keeps sending back to Washington, unlike Johnson, J.D. Vance is not a true believer, I don't think. So I think he, he could be a, like, dark horse sane person in the long run. On the other hand, since he's clearly a windsock, he'll probably be a douche uh, as long as it behooves him to be thus, as long as it is a benefit for him, as long as he views it as being necessary to be a jackass in order to hold on to that Senate seat, he probably will. All of which is to say he will probably be terrible in the short term, but then if we get lucky and the Republicans become less awful in the future, he is likely to become less awful with them. Another thing about this election is it has not been quite as good a night for election deniers as was anticipated. Like, the election denier governor candidates who ran in Michigan, in Wisconsin, in Illinois, as uh, Arizona we don't know yet, although Kerry Lake, the, again, absolute yahoo, who is the gubernatorial candidate there, is not ahead right now and may in fact, even though she's really telegenic and was a surprisingly good candidate, may end up not losing. And so far, there haven't been quite as many shouts of voter fraud as I expected from the Republicans. <laughs> Don't you worry, it's going to come. But I'm shocked that it hasn't started already. One last thing I want to touch on in my more sort of like, you know, freewheeling like reactions 
thing that I'm doing here at the end of this episode. Florida. Florida. Florida looks really scary right now after this election. Um, Last night was a really good night for one Florida man and a really bad night for another Florida man. Both of those Florida men are horrible and I wish them every failure and uh, tragedy imaginable. But, But what we saw last night in Florida really looks like a coronation of Donald Trump's probable successor as leader of the Republican Party, and that is the Republican, newly reelected Republican governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis. So Ron DeSantis won the election in Florida in 2018 by like half a percentage point. In the time since then, he spent most of his time in office being like an obnoxious, like truculent culture warrior turning Florida into his own, like, Orban's Hungary-style authoritarian fiefdom, like, launching political attacks on companies in Florida that appear to not like. It's kind of creepy. But he won last night with, like, 20% of the vote against a Democrat who was a moderate Republican and, like, former governor of the state of Florida who switched parties. That's scary. What's also scary is the fact that, I don't remember the exact numbers on this, but like Miami-Dade County, which Democrats typically win, swung like 20 points to Republicans. That is terrifying because this county is like a very diverse, populated uh, county, which hypothetically should be exactly the kind of county in which Democrats do well and like not last night. So there are a couple of implications to draw from what happened in Florida. One, I would argue that in terms of national elections, Florida is gone. Democrats must shop elsewhere. We should not spend a nickel trying to win Florida in the next presidential election because Florida is a very expensive media market, so we'd waste a whole bunch of money on it, and we're just not going to get it. It's not going to happen at this point. The combination of voter suppression and the fact that Republicans are now just very popular in Florida for some reason... It, it would be a wasted investment for Democrats, I would argue, to even try. And then there's the conclusions that we might want to start drawing out of the fact that we lost Miami-Dade County. Or, like, Miami-Dade County swung by, like, 20 points from the last set of elections. This highly populous, diverse, urban county. Um, there are a number of conclusions that I think can be drawn from this. One of those conclusions is that... I don't think Democrats can simply take non-white voters for granted on the basis of, yeah, well, the Republicans are racists. Because it didn't seem to work out so hot in the 2020 election, and it clearly didn't work here either. I don't mean to imply that the Democratic Party's entire message to all non-white voters is, well, the Republicans are racists, but um, clearly we can't just assume that we get that vote by default. That applies in particular to the Latino vote. Now, one of the mistakes that Democrats have historically made when it comes to our approach to Latino voters is to treat Latino voters as a block, which <laughs> comes from a place of well-meaning ignorance uh, of the very real differences that you'll find between, you know, a Colombian and a Guatemalan, or a Cuban and, you know, a person from Honduras. It, it, you know, these folks are not all the same just because they are largely not white and speak Spanish. Uh, And Democrats' approach to them, which has often been, hello, have you heard about my position on immigration? (laughs) 
is not effective, considering the diversity within that community, ideologically. That being said, over the last couple of cycles, I think Democrats have started getting better at recognizing that the Latino community is not a block. On the other hand, I see a lot of Democrats at times using that, basically making that statement or using that as a crutch to write off certain trends in the Latino community that are not favorable to Democrats to ignore certain problems. Like looking at the results in Florida, where a heavier population of Cubans and Venezuelans, uh, voters who are particularly hostile to anything that even smells remotely like communism, Democrats have a tendency to be like, yeah, well, Florida doesn't count because they're Cubans and they're crazy. So, but I think that that ignores a trend, which was that a lot of Florida Cubans, you know, Obama performed a lot better among Florida Cubans than Democrats are now. So did Hillary, I think, in 2016. We, for a long time, it was a sort of trope in American politics that like Latinos all vote Democrat except for Florida Cubans. But that was starting to change, but now appears to have gone really hard in the opposite direction. And I think reflects some trouble spots that we have in the Latino community in general. And if we ignore some of those problems uh, to our approach, in our approach to the Latino community more broadly by just saying, oh, well, it doesn't count because Cubans, then I think we're making a mistake. Now, there's a lot of deeper analysis that could be done around this issue, um, but I'm going to skip most of that in service to the goal of wrapping up this episode pretty soon. Uh, but one thing I will note is you'll notice that I'm using the word Latino. I'm not saying Latinx when I talk about the Latino community. Now, I've hinted at various points in this podcast and other episodes that, that I am concerned about a long-term problem that Democrats are sometimes having with working-class voters, which I could attribute to a number of things, but one of the things that I attribute it to is a sort of cultural elitism that I think leaves a lot of working-class voters, not just white working-class voters, but working-class voters of all different ethnicities, uh, that leaves those folks feeling left behind at times or, or looked down upon. And what could possibly be more culturally elitist than a bunch of well-meaning white progressives who do not speak Spanish coming into the Latino community and attempting to tell Latinos how to better speak their own language by coming up with a gender-neutral term for the word Latino. I know there are arguments about the reality that Spanish is a gendered language and we're trying to move away from that sort of thing, but, like, it's the language. It is what it is. There are bigger fish to fry. Uh, it is elitist. I have literally, I know, I live in Spain, I speak Spanish, I know a lot of uh, Latinos, and I have literally never met a Latin American person who, when asked, was like, oh yeah, I'm not Latino, I'm not Latina, I'm Latinx, call me Latinx. Every time I've asked an actual Latino person what they think about this, they don't like it. Polling backs this up. Almost no actual Latinos like this notion. 
Now, I think the Latin X thing is an excellent metaphor for the broader issue that the political left has sometimes with allowing, uh, let's say, college dorm room politics to be too much of our narrative and to make us appear out of touch or condescending. But rather than take on that whole issue now, for now, let's just stop trying to tell Latinos how to speak Spanish, shall we? And moving forward, let's take the worrying trends in various parts of that community seriously and ask ourselves what we can do to better appeal to working class people of all ethnic backgrounds rather than attempting to come up with special little tailored messages to each little subgroup to the detriment of other ones that we don't find quite as exciting. That kind of broad messaging works pretty well for Obama. Maybe we should give that another shot. Alright, I'm going to leave it there. This is way longer already than I planned and I desperately need sleep. So, again, just to summarize, moral of the story, midterm results based on what we know so far, not awesome, but not a massacre, which, in context, is about the best we could have hoped for. Oh, wait, just kidding. One final point that I forgot to make out of the whole Florida debacle. The fact that Ron DeSantis just won a 20-point re-election in the state of Florida uh, <laughs> puts him very much on a collision course with another Florida man, Donald Trump whose hand-picked candidates all over the country, for the most part, went up in smoke tonight, uh, which is hilarious, because anything that goes wrong for Donald Trump uh, is funny to me. Um, but also because it makes it pretty clear that Ron DeSantis could well now be the favorite, as opposed to Donald Trump, to be the Republican nominee for president in 2024. Now, on the one hand... That's scary for two reasons. One, because Ron DeSantis probably is the kind of competent, non-lazy authoritarian who could do a lot more damage than Donald Trump if he really wanted. And two, because I think he actually would be a better candidate than Donald Trump in the next election. But on the other hand, the way this night went with Trump getting egg all over his face... Uh, and Ron DeSantis having this kind of huge personal victory in Florida and getting all the accolades that he's getting today and a result, the kind of Republican-on-Republican Republican violence that's likely to result uh, from Trump resenting all this attention DeSantis is getting and turning on him is liable to be really funny to watch over the next two years. So get your popcorn ready. All right, now I'm done. That's it for this episode of OK Talks. If you like the show as it's coming back online, please be sure to subscribe so you won't miss the next episode. If you really want to do me a favor, please like it, leave a review, and most of all, please, please share it with anyone else that you think might get something out of it. As always, I want to thank my friend Nate Wright for the inspiration and for having designed this podcast artwork, and you for listening.